Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah really does tell us some things we have not heard before, or at least expands on ideas and concepts of who God is and what His plan is. He starts to uh, pop the the top off off of this amazing story that is so much more than a story. And the further we get into this, the more we're going to see this. I, I found in the study for this week, I spent all day yesterday on one verse, which tells you maybe we, we may be here a while tonight. <laughs> all day. Literally, I got up this morning and it was Isaiah chapter 6, verse 2. I'm like, oh no! There's so much even in the first verse. But what the Lord does here through the prophet Isaiah is is He talks about some things that no one knew was coming. And He does it at an amazing time. He comes busting into reality in the days of Isaiah when Israel and Judah were literally teeter-tottering on the verge of collapse. I love how, how the Lord does that. Because He also sent His Son Jesus at a time when the people of Israel were teeter-tottering on the verge of collapse. And so if you worry at times that our country is teeter-tottering on the verge of collapse, just know this, God is always well-timed. And He's very much aware of everything that's going on. The foreign juggernaut of Assyria was picking up speed. From its massive kingdom in the north, it was spreading out, it was subjugating and steamrolling over other smaller nations, and the plan was to go all the way from the Euphrates to the Nile. That was the intention of Assyria, to take it all out and to be one mighty, massive nation. And so in the midst of all this, not only were the smaller nations afraid, but they were beginning to turn against each other. They were turning and fighting, they were trying to make alliances, alliances wouldn't come together so they would get angry with each other and try to fight it out. And so we have Judah in the midst of this, and there's panic and there's pressure, but that wasn't their primary problem. Isaiah tags their primary problem in chapter 22, verse 12. Where he writes, In that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. In other words, repentance. Instead, there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle and slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat and drinking of wine, saying, Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Isaiah says that is the problem in Judah. That is the problem up in Israel. You're on the verge of collapse morally, spiritually. The Lord is calling you back to repentance and you're partying it up. And this is the reason you're going under. This is the reason the nation is brittle. Because all of the marrow of spirituality has been sucked out of the bones. The bones are dry. They're cracking. They're breaking. And the nation is about to come apart. And I don't have to tell you, I will anyway, that when a nation's faith and virtue and morality is sapped away, it becomes internally brittle and easily broken. It's happened with every nation in the history of the planet. This was the moral climate into which Isaiah came. Into which the Lord called this prophet to begin his prophetic ministry. And up to the point where we arrive at chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died, up until that point, Isaiah is not having much success. It's pretty frustrating. 
He's doing a lot of preaching and there's not much listening. But the Lord is about to give Isaiah a great vision and a great commission, both of which are going to sustain him for a long-term ministry. This is what I love about Isaiah as well. Here's a man who's probably prophesied five, six, seven years up to this point. Maybe a little longer, maybe a little less. And he comes to this point that we'll talk about tonight, and God opens up for him what he has for him to do. Not an easy task by any means. And gives him a massive vision, one of the most stirring and amazing in all of Scripture. And from this point onward, Isaiah will prophesy another 45 years. So he doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He keeps going. Why? Because he, well, he will have seen the Lord. Remember that when a nation is on the verge of collapse, as Judah was, as sometimes I fear America is, remember this, don't ever forget this, the Lord is still on His throne. Chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of His robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above Him, Uh, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called out to, and one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of Him who called out, while the temple was filling with smoke. (laughs) It was 740 B.C. The year of Isaiah's greatest vision where he would say, I saw the Lord! I saw the Lord! And we're immediately faced with a difficult question before we even get beyond that claim on the part of Isaiah. I saw the Lord! Well, how? How did you see the Lord, Isaiah? You may recall the Lord said to Moses back in Exodus 33.20, You cannot see My face. For no man can see me and live. That's very clear. And yet Isaiah says, I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord. Okay, well, if no man can see the Lord and live, Isaiah, how did you see the Lord? And the answer is actually pretty simple. God revealed Himself to to Isaiah in a way that would not kill him. He he, He made Himself accessible to Isaiah's vision. He did something here because the Scripture is not going to contradict itself. And if God can't be seen without a man dying, well, He must have done something here to make Himself visible, accessible to Isaiah in a way that didn't kill Isaiah. It shouldn't surprise us. He's done it before. He did it for Abraham. Genesis 18, He shows up, eats with Abraham, talks with him, shares with him. He's in human form. It's called a theophany. He did it as a a wrestler with Jacob in Genesis 32. They wrestled all night long. You know that great story. He, He did it in the burning bush where he appeared to Moses. Exodus chapter 3, verse 4. And in Exodus 34, remember Moses wanted to see God and God said, it's not going to work, buddy. I'd wipe you out. But I'll tell you what I will do. I'll make all my goodness pass before you and then you can see the train of my glory. You can see my glory trailing off as I pass by. I'll let you see that much. What man cannot see of the Lord and survive is God in His glorious omnipotence. 
God as He absolutely and unequivocally is, for a man to see Him in His full self and blow the brain right out of the back of our skull, we would not be able to to take it. But that tells us something about our God. He wants to be seen. He loves us so much and has always loved His creation so much that He's always made a way for man to see Him. He's made it possible for us to get a glimpse of who He is, culminating in the ultimate expression of His nature and His presence in Jesus Christ. Why did God become a man? Because He wanted man to see Him. And He knew that man couldn't see Him as He was. It would blow us away. And so, He put on flesh. And He dwelt among us. And He says, Now do you understand something of my character, something of my nature. John, in John 1.18, says no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And the word explained is kind of weak in the English. It's exegeomai in the Hebrew. It's not just He has explained Him, but it's he, he has revealed His character. He has revealed His nature. It wasn't that Jesus stood on a mountainside and talked about God and what God was like. It's that Jesus walked among us as God, explaining Him to us in person. The Hebrew writer says, another one of my favorite verses, Hebrews 1, 2, and 3, In these last days He has spoken to us in His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the world, and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. Every true revelation of God, every time I personally believe that man is allowed to see God in Scripture, what is called a theophany is in reality a Christophany. It is Christ Jesus. Now that's my personal belief. You can struggle through that yourself. Every time there's a visitation in the Hebrew Scriptures where man is allowed to have contact with or see God, as Gideon did, as the man I already mentioned, as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did in the furnace, the fourth one, walking around with them, in each and every case, I'm convinced personally it was Jesus Christ. And I'm no less convinced where we are tonight. I believe Isaiah's vision, when he says, I saw the Lord, I believe... Isaiah saw Jesus. And I'll tell you why in a few minutes. Let's look at it. Verse 1, chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe filling the temple. Like I said, I spent the whole day on this verse yesterday. So we're going to sit here for a few minutes. Get comfortable. He sees three things. He describes three things when he says, I saw the Lord. The first thing he sees and describes is a king enthroned. A king enthroned. It's interesting that it was in the year that King Uzziah died. Now remember, King Uzziah was a great king. He reigned 52 years over Jerusalem, over Judah. Yes, leprosy was kind of the end of that reign. It was an unfortunate event. His pride got the best of him. You know the story. Went into the temple, tried to offer priestly incense, and ended up getting leprosy. And for the rest of his life, would live outside the city in a secluded house, isolated from his own people. He would never be able to come out again. And it's a tragedy how it ended. 
But that doesn't take away from the reign. Sometimes, sometimes a king does great things and only messes it up toward the end. You gotta still recognize, and history does this, recognizes all the greatness. We're told in 2 Chronicles 26 verse 8 that Uzziah's fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. Everyone knew who Uzziah was. And in fact, the word for fame in 2 Chronicles 26 is the Hebrew word shem. Perhaps you've heard it in the phrase Hashem, which means the name. So literally what 2 Chronicles 26 tells us is Uzziah's name extended to the border of Egypt. Everyone knew him. He was truly a great king. In fact, by all human standards, you'd have to give Isaiah or Uzziah A's straight across the board. He was a straight A king. Advancement. He advanced Judah's borders. Architecture. He was a great builder in and around the kingdom. The agriculture. He got his hands into the soil and he created vast gardens and and wonderful vegetation. And he was well known for his armaments there in Jerusalem, for the building of weaponry and for for inventing things. This guy was a he's one of those Renaissance kings who just kind of did it all. Why are we talking about Uzziah? This is the year of his death, right? Exactly. And that's the point. Under Uzziah, for all of his greatness, for all of the A's that he accomplished in his life, under Uzziah, no one saw the Lord. No one saw the Lord. A few alarms went off, but no one saw the Lord. (laughs) Sometimes it takes the death of an Uzziah to see the Lord. Now listen to me. Sometimes Uzziah's got to die for someone to see God. In your life, who is your Uzziah? Who's that great person in your life? Perhaps someone you admire, someone you look up to. A pastor. (laughs) No. No. Good, because Uzziah's got to die. So let's not make it a pastor. Uzziah's got to die for you to be up. Maybe it's you. Maybe it's your own prowess, your own accomplishments. Maybe it is someone who disciples you, who you love and and you admire and you look up to, but but they are your faith rather than Jesus. Uzziah's got to die so that we can see the Lord. Isaiah was a young prophet in the days of King Uzziah. He had to be impressed. I mean, until the leprosy incident at least. This is a great king, a godly king who had done great things for the kingdom. And so Isaiah the young prophet would say, yeah, Uzziah, Uzziah, he's our man. If he gets leprosy, bummer. (laughs) Who is your Uzziah? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Uzziah's got to die. Get him out of the way. Look to Jesus. Don't look to anyone else. And we've talked about so many times when we look at other people, when there are Uzziahs in our lives and they get leprosy, faith begins to crumble. People leave churches. Hearts are broken. People wander away. And why is that? Because their eyes weren't on Jesus. And I'll tell you something, dear fellowship, if your eyes are on Jesus Christ and not on Pastor Rick or Pastor Les or any of the shepherds, and something happens to Pastor Rick or Pastor Les or some of the shepherds, the Bridge Fellowship will be fine. Because it's Jesus who we love. It's Jesus who we serve, who we follow. Keep your eyes on Him. Uzziah, he's got to die. It was in the year that Uzziah died that Isaiah saw the Lord a king enthroned. 
finally saw him as he was. He also saw the king exalted. Not only enthroned, but lofty and exalted. Some think this phrase lofty and exalted indicates that what he's seeing is a vision of the temple in heaven. God's heavenly temple. And there's some good reason for that. In fact, the word temple that that is used here at the end of of verse 1 is hekal in the Hebrew. And hekal is normally associated with the heavenly temple. That's the word that tends to be used. Usually the temple on earth is the word for house. But the temple in heaven, hekal, that's a different word. It was used by David in Psalm 11 verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And so, when people read lofty and exalted, some scholars have said, oh, okay, it's just another sign it's the heavenly temple. And remember this, Isaiah's vision is very similar to John's revelation of Jesus. Very similar. Revelation chapter 4, verse 2, John says, Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was standing in heaven, and one sitting on the throne. What did Isaiah say? I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. So he sees a king enthroned. He sees a king exalted. And I would agree that this is the heavenly temple. That the vision Isaiah gets here is not a vision of God in the temple in Jerusalem, but literally of the Lord on His throne in heaven. But understand that the words lofty and exalted do not describe the throne, and they don't describe the temple. They describe the Lord. He is the one who's lofty and exalted. He is the King exalted. He is the one who said, Psalm 46.10, Cease striving and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Even if the atheist group from Wisconsin can shut down the nativity scene in Texas, I will be exalted in all the earth. Did you hear about that this last week? Actually, it just came in the news today. Small town, I think it's Allen. Sounds right. No, Athens. Athens, Texas. Don't even know where, you know, small town outside of Dallas, Fort Worth. They've had a nativity scene up on, a, on one of the four corners of their, of their main center of town for 30 plus years. And an atheist group in Wisconsin is now threatening a lawsuit if they don't take it down. And in addition, put up a banner that, that describes atheism. Yeah. And I read that and I just went, I will be, he says, exalted in the earth. Isaiah chapter 12, verse 4. He says, In that day you will say, Give thanks to the Lord, call on His name, make known His deeds among the people, make them remember that His name is exalted. And Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20, Paul writes, He raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenlies, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Uzziah made a name for himself, but Jesus is the name above all names, lofty and exalted. A king enthroned. A king exalted. And thirdly, a king explained. The train of his robe is filling the temple. Train of his robe, filling the temple. Now, you might not even think about it. You might read that and go, cool, and move on to the next verse. But pause for a moment longer. The train of his robe is filling the temple, which speaks, obviously, of his majesty, and of his royalty. This is not like the emperor's new clothes. (laughs) The opposite. He's got a massive, amazing, remarkable robe that just spreads out. 
And this great robe filling up the temple speaks of a large temple as well and a vast expanse and a mighty, mighty king. But no matter how glorious and impressive this phrase, the train of his robe, is an anthropomorphic term. Anthropomorphic. I like those words. Big words. Any word with more than two syllables really excites me. An anthrop, especially for playing Scrabble, because those are the big points, Rachel. Yeah. Anthropomorphic term. In other words, the train of his robe is characteristically a human description. And not one that you would think would apply in such a majestic, amazing, remarkable, spiritual, heavenly vision. The train of his robe. Well, sure, it fills the temple, but it's still a real physical and human description in an otherwise spiritual and heavenly scene. And Jesus said in John 4.24, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. This phrase so bothered the translators of several uh, Bibles, Hebrew to Greek, the Septuagint, Hebrew to Aramaic, the Targum. Uh, Hebrew to Latin, the Vulgate Bible. All three of those Bibles, you know what the translators did? They left out the phrase entirely. You don't see the train of his robe in this verse. They just left it out. Why? Because it was too human. Because the translators themselves took it upon themselves to edit Scripture and to say, no, we can't have that in there. This is too awesome, a spiritual moment for such a human description to be involved. You know, Jesus was also too human for people. There are a lot of people who then and now look at Jesus and say, it's just too much humanity there. He said in Matthew 11.18, John the Baptist came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Behold, a gluttonous man and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is vindicated by her deeds. People in Jesus' day, as He walked the earth, looked at Him and said, He is too human to be Messiah. There's too much humanity in this man. Look at where He walks. Look at who He hangs out with. Look at how non-religious He is. How can this guy be Messiah? And people still struggle with his humanity. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But John, Jesus' best friend, closest confidant, the the disciple whom Jesus loved, the one who waited 50, 60 years after the crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension, he waited to write his gospel. He pondered these things. He thought them through. He prayed over them. And when he wrote his gospel, he clearly, clearly, sees Jesus on this throne. He saw Jesus on the throne in Isaiah's vision. He saw Jesus enthroned and exalted. And this is why I believe Isaiah's vision is of Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 12. Keep your finger there. John chapter 12. Verse 37. Now follow this with me. John's writing, he says, But though he, that's Jesus, have performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke Lord, who has believed our report? 
And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart. So that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. Watch this, verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw His glory and he spoke of Him. Isaiah saw His glory. Whose glories? Jesus' glory. Isaiah spoke of Him. Who? Jesus. And by the way, the context of the verse that he quotes from Isaiah in verse 40 is in chapter 6. We're going to get to it in just a minute. John says Isaiah saw the glory of Jesus and spoke about Jesus. When? When Isaiah saw the Lord enthroned exalted, and now explained. No wonder there's such an anthropomorphic term in the verse. No wonder we see the train of His robe because Jesus is not only God, Jesus is also man. And fully fully accepts, walks in that connection to us. John looks at this vision and says, Isaiah saw the Lord all right. The Lord... Jesus Christ. Verse 2. You spent all day on that, Rick? Yeah, I really did. Verse 2. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. This vision is the only time in all of Scripture where we see or have described the seraphim. This certain brand of angel, only here in this verse. Seraphim, by the way, is just the plural of seraph. Anytime you see im in a Hebrew word, the im at the end of it, it's probably a plural form of the word. That's kind of how they do it. So seraphim, more than one seraph flying. Seraph in the Hebrew means fiery. Fiery or a flame. Which fits the description of angels. Psalm 104, verse 4. He makes the winds his messengers, flaming fire his ministers. And the Hebrew writer, chapter 1, verse 7, describes, explains a little more for us, says, of the angels, he says, who makes his angels' winds and his ministers a flame of fire. So you could say these seraphim are really on fire for Jesus, because there they are, flaming and fiery. An amazing vision. Something about them that causes them to bear the name flame or fire. And so we see here the seraphim In verse 3, one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. We have a king enthroned, a king exalted, a king explained. Number 4, if you want to keep going, this is the king exclusive. The king exclusive. Note this phrase, holy, holy, holy. We sing it in a hymn. We've heard it many different times. Holy, holy, holy. What's the point? Some think this points to the triune nature of God. Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit. And it might. We can't say for sure that that's what's going on there. But the main idea that you got to get here is the exclusivity of the nature of God. He is completely other. One holy is just not enough. <laughs> He's holy, holy, holy. He's absolutely holy. He is completely other, completely different. Three holies sung back to back to back. 
That's called a trisagion. A trisagion, which is a worshipful proclamation of His infinite, infinite and ultimate holiness. It's just saying, He is so holy you cannot say it once. Now in John's vision, in the Revelation, it's not seraphim, but cherubim He sees and He hears. Revelation 4.8 tells us the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they do not cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and who is and who is to come. So both the seraphim and the cherubim are crying out the same thing. This trisagion, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. There's no one like Him. He is absolutely singular, absolutely unique, completely exclusive. There never will be, never has been, nor is there now anyone like the Lord. And remember, we're talking about Jesus here. This is Kadosh Israel. This is the Holy One of Israel. None of the prophets go to such lengths as Isaiah will go to to describe His holiness. It's just awesome. And it seems that as each chapter rolls by in the prophecies of Isaiah, it's just more overwhelming. Till we get down toward the end of the book and we're on our faces saying, Holy, holy, holy. Verse 4. And the foundations of the, of the thresholds trembled at the sound of the, or at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Victor Buxbazen says the effect upon the temple of the angelic chant was like the eruption of a volcano. The foundations of the thresholds of the temple shook and the house filled with smoke. Like a volcano going off. And these are just two angels talking back and forth. Can you imagine worship in heaven? If one angelic voice can shake the temple, what's it going to be like to be in the midst of a multitude worshiping and praising God? Now we've seen something of this before. The presence of the Shekinah glory of God. 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 10. tells us it happened that when the priest came from the holy place, the cloud filled the house of the Lord. This is Solomon's temple, dedication day. And the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Solomon said, the Lord said He would dwell in the thick cloud. So Isaiah sees it as as smoke filling the temple. And Solomon and the priests, they saw the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God filling the temple. And in Revelation 15, verse 8, another vision of the temple in heaven, the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power. And no one was able to enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, here's the vision. And we just have words and a little imagination, but Isaiah is seeing this. I saw the Lord. He sees the awesome nature represented here. He sees the throne room. He sees the angels. Now, he only saw the seraphim, so he wasn't freaked out by the cherubim. Remember, they have four faces and eyes all over. Which means they see everything that's going on. The seraphim, they just got the six wings, so they're a little more normal looking, you know. (laughs) Isaiah sees all of this. The threshold, the foundations are shaking. And Isaiah begins doing the same thing. Isaiah begins shaking himself. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined! Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah blurts this out. He can't help himself. I'm sitting here reading this going, Isaiah, shh, be quiet. Maybe they won't know you're there. 
And he just shouts, Woe is me! I am ruined. And in verse 5, we have a prophet and a people exposed. There is a massive exposure going on here. As he cries out, I'm ruined. Literally, I am undone. He sees this vision and Isaiah, even though God makes it possible for him to see without dying, Isaiah is falling apart. I am coming undone. Now, his outcry, though not surprising, is fascinating. Because think about what he says. I am a man of unclean lips. And I live among a people of unclean lips. What's fascinating about this to me is this is the year King Uzziah died. King Uzziah who had leprosy. King Uzziah who came before the Lord in the temple to act like a priest. His power led to his pride, which led to his priestly activity, which was not his to perform. And he instantly gets leprosy and he is unclean in the temple. And now Isaiah says, woe is me, I'm ruined, I'm unclean. I told you, I think Uzziah's situation had an impact on Isaiah. I think the young prophet saw all this go on and he was shaken a bit by this glorious, older, mature, wise king falling to such temptation as pride. And here's Isaiah, and he's in the temple, Uzziah was in the temple, And Isaiah says, I'm unclean. He gets it out there quick. What is it that stirs this woeful cry inside the heart of the prophet? It's the presence of the Lord. You see, when Uzziah went into the temple, he didn't go in expecting the presence of the Lord. Like a lot of people who go to church, not going expecting the presence of the Lord. We go expecting a good Bible study or expecting some worship. I hope he plays that tune that I like, and if he doesn't, I'm not coming back next week. (laughs) People go in not necessarily expecting to meet Jesus lofty and exalted and holy in, in this place, in this barn. They come in for fellowship or for other reasons. Check your heart when you come in the door. Come in expecting to see the Lord. Uzziah didn't. Isaiah did. Uzziah is freaked out. When he's exposed, he becomes leprous. But when Isaiah was exposed, he immediately begins repenting right off the bat. And his, his character here is exposed. I'm a man of unclean lips. Everything that's coming out of me, I, I'm unclean. And so his character exposed by the presence of the Lord. His culture is exposed as well. And I live among a people of unclean lips. I'm leprous, they're leprous, we're all leprous, we're all unclean compared to you. And that's what happens when you come into the presence of a holy God. It stirs repentance. It it, it lays us out. We come undone when we recognize His holiness. Now, I'd like to say I admire Isaiah, you know, for coming clean about his uncleanness. I'd like to say, good job, Isaiah, for, for saying, I've got character flaws and so does my culture. Good job for repenting. But you know, I really don't think he had any choice in the matter. <laughs> I don't. Now, I think going into this vision, his heart was right. He was a humble servant before the Lord. He loved the Lord. He honored the Lord with his life. And so when he comes into the presence of the Lord, the immediate response is a right heart saying, I repent. But this is what happens when we come into the presence of God. No man, no woman can stand in the presence of God and not be painfully, dreadfully aware of our sinfulness. 
That's what His presence does. It reminds us of how unclean we really are. Unless, of course, the heart is seared, the conscience is burned, as with a branding iron, unless the heart is as cold as stone, when you come into the presence of God, you recognize your own sin. John said in 1 John 1.5, This is the message which we have heard from Him and announced to you that God is light. And in Him there is no darkness at all. Guess what that means? When you come into the presence of the light, if there's an ounce of darkness in you, it's going to be obvious. There's no hiding it. He's light. And we are so not. (laughs) And it's why... I believe Paul wrote that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We will either bow in worshipful thanksgiving for our cleansing in the presence of the light of the Lord or we will bow in abject fear of His glory. Either way, we will recognize how low we are and how exalted He is. Verse 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips and your iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven, literally atoned for, covered. Remember Uzziah came before the Lord in the temple with pride and he was struck with leprosy and he was physically revealing his spiritual uncleanness The outside revealed what was going on on the inside. Now Isaiah is caught up before the Lord in the temple, but he comes with humility, and so now he is struck with the burning fire, the burning coal of forgiveness. And now he's ready. Now he's ready for his commission. He's been serving. He's been ministering. He's been prophesying to a degree for a few years now. But it's not until this point. It's not until Isaiah sees the Lord and falls before Him in repentance that he is really ready to receive the Great Commission. God does that in our lives. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes the commission has not been given because we're not ready for it. And it just takes time. Because God is working on us and He's preparing us. And if we go to the temple too quickly, if we go rushing up there to to burn fire on the altar of incense, I'm ready, Lord! Just as Uzziah did, we only end up unclean. So Isaiah is ready. The timing is right. He comes up before the Lord and he receives now his great commission. Verse 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am! Send me! Notice how fast things change for Isaiah. Just a moment before, Woe is me, I'm undone! And now, here I am, send me! What's the difference? Atonement. Forgiveness. God has made him clean. And now he's ready to go. Who will go for us? Who will go for us, the Lord says. Plural. It's called the plurality of majesty. Some say, well, that's all that's going on. Like a king or a queen saying, we shall absolve thee, or go thou for us and collect thine gold. You know, that is... 
It's a lame example that people use because who came first, the kings and the queens or the Lord? And it was the Lord in the first place, Genesis 1.26, who said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. It's not just a plurality of majesty, gang. And you know where I'm going with this. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. The great Shema of Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Shema Yisrael. Yahweh Elohenu, Yahweh Echad. In the Hebrew. And in the Hebrew it's much more profound because Elohim, Elohenu, the name for God is the plural form meaning several. Meaning three or more. When Elohim is used... El is the singular one. Elah is two gods. And Elohim is three or more. And here, O Israel, the Lord is our Eloheinu, Elohim. And then they say, the Lord is one. And you Bible students know this has bugged rabbis for centuries. Because the word for a one for one is achad, which means a plurality of one. It means a union of oneness. It's the same word used for Adam and Eve that the man and the woman, they became one flesh. They became Echad. But there's two of them. Yeah, but they're one. Yeah, but there's two, but they're one. The Lord is Echad. What I'm saying here is just this. The doctrine of a triune God is not inconsistent with Hebrew Scriptures. It fits. It flows. It's in complete harmony with the Hebrew Scriptures, that is the New Testament Scriptures, where we see more graphically portrayed Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Of course, we see Father, Son, and Holy Spirit throughout the book of Isaiah. So it works. It fits. Now, it's been said, the closer you get to the altar, the more likely you are to become a missionary. I like that. So if you don't want to go, sit as far back as possible. (laughs) No, you in the back, that's fine. I know some of you, just you know, it's Brian's favorite seat. I think it's because Brian smiles so much during Bible study it would really offend or bother people if he sat up here. So You just stay where you are, buddy. Your life, when you come close to the altar, when you see the Lord, when you hear the commission, your life gets irreparably altered. You get changed. Until all you can do is cry out, Here I am! Send me! I really think this is why a lot of Christians don't go too far. You know, I want to be in a relationship with Jesus, and He loves that. That's good. Praise the Lord. I want to be involved with my church fellowship, and that's wonderful. But I don't really want to go any further. Please don't send me to Africa. Remember the old song? I used to love that song. I don't know if you remember. Please don't send me to Africa. I don't think that I've got what it takes. It's a funny song. Anyway, if you get too close to the Lord, it will ruin you. It will mess up your... Trust me. (laughs) Not that I'm so close. I'm just saying, it will mess up your life. Big time. You'll start doing things and wondering, why did I do that? And you'll start saying things and wondering, how did I get myself into this? And it's marvelous. And that's how God's called all of us to live. Not as partial missionaries. Not as part-timers. I mean, He's calling every single one of us to full-time ministry of some sort. Yes, it may be in the job that you're in. It may be mission work right where you are, but the mentality shifts. And it ruins all of the selfishness of our lives to get close to the Lord. It ruined Isaiah. Here I am! Send me! And, and now we have a heart engaged 
A heart engaged. He, he just says two words in the Hebrew. It's a very simple cry. Two words. Hanani shlahani. That's all he said. Two words that will ruin your life for this world. Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. Who among us is willing to say that? Ask yourself, am I really willing to say to the Lord, here I am, send me. (laughs) I love that the Lord asks a question. He often does this, by the way, with a commission. He always, often, won't say always, He often forms it as a question, who will go? Would you be willing? Are you open to? Would you pray about this? He lays the question out there, who's going to do this? Here I am. Send me. I love the example of the guy who said, I raised my hand in church to ask where the bathroom was, and the next thing I knew, I was the youth pastor. (laughs) That was the question. Here I am. Send me. It'll ruin your life. Jesus said to Peter in John 21, verse 18, Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. You did it your way. But... When you are older, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. What is Jesus talking about? John tells us. He said this signifying by what kind of death Peter would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. (laughs) What an offer. Hey, you used to be able to do whatever you want, but you're going to follow me and die. So follow me. And Peter did. But that's the offer. That's the commission. Who's willing to go? Who's willing to have their life ruined? Who is willing to step out into the unknown of faith and walk for me and do as I call you, even if it costs you your life? Who's willing to go? And Isaiah says, here I am. Send me. Why? Because he's clean now. Because he's been forgiven. And when you've been forgiven, there's really no other answer that makes you feel whole and fulfilled and satisfied with your life. I am graced and forgiven. I have eternal salvation. Send me, Lord. I am not my own. I belong to Him.